Hello, friends. Welcome back. This week, my guest is Alexander Cortez. He's a personal trainer, a writer, and a speaker. And he's a pretty interesting guy. I didn't have an agenda going into this conversation. I just wanted to talk to him about whatever was on his mind. And we ended up discussing strategies for success in the 21st century, what skills and knowledge he would give to an 18-year-old human being if he was going to design one right now and send it out into the world. Then we moved on to the Fire Festival documentary, which both of us absolutely fell in love with when we watched it. If you haven't seen it yet, I urge you to go onto Netflix and give it a watch. But we had a look into that and and derived some really interesting uh, conclusions about how seduced society is with success and the potential for Billy McFarlane, the guy behind Fire Festival, to have uh, Gary Vaynerchuk pressing on his amygdala throughout the entirety of his life. So if you want to find out what that means, continue listening. And as always, if you are new here, please press subscribe. If you are a regular and you haven't done already, press five stars wherever you are listening. It would make me very happy indeed, and it helps support the podcast. Now, please welcome Alexander Cortez. Alex, how are you today? Welcome to Modern Wisdom. I'm very good. How about yourself, my man? Yeah, I'm fantastic, thanks. It looks an awful lot nicer wherever you are. I can see there's a reflection oh. of some, some good some good sunlight outside, which we haven't seen in the UK for a long time. I, mean, well, I, I live right on the beach in Venice, so I'm in a pretty opportune spot for weather. Oh, man. That is uh, jealousy-inducing, to say the least. So... <laughs> We haven't got an agenda to today. We're just going to talk about whatever's whatever's on our mind. So, what have you been what have you been learning about, or reading about, or thinking about recently? Uh, recently, so I, I got a few things I'm working on. Um, I, I don't have any real structure to my day at all. I mean, like I do, but I don't. I basically just write an email every day, and then tweet a lot, and then just talk about stuff. So it's sort of like this personal brand influencer strange position. Yeah. That uh, you can't really qualify what you do, yet people pay attention to you all the time. <laughs> but uh, I mean, the, the big project I'm actually working on right now that's been constructive is I developed um, an online website learning portal with a business partner of mine called Sovereign University to teach people how to become sovereign individuals uh, within like the modern sort of digital virtual economy, physical world as they've merged with each other. You know, my, myself, I've been working online for myself about going on three years. And before that, I'd worked with other people. And I've also been a personal trainer for 10 years, training people in person. Um, but I always found myself attracted to sort of this political conflict. Uh, I, like, I like knowing what's going on, you know, in the sense of like on a meta, on a meta level, not just on the level of petty politics. But it was, it's been fascinating to me the last six, seven years to watch the dialogue and discourse devolve into this politicized rhetoric where everything's political and everything you say can and will be used against you. And... You see people lose their jobs or what they said. You see people, you know, go under fire for every kind of comment. Everything is taken out of context, but into a different context. And I realize for someone like myself, where I because I've gone through that, because I've gone through that myself, and I know what the consequences are. Uh, three years ago, I wanted to be in a position where I never had to worry about backlash of any kind. I didn't want to have to worry about an online mob. I did not want to have to worry about being doxxed. Uh, I want to be immune to all of that. And I realized if you work for yourself, if you're a sovereign individual in the sense that you are self-made, self-paid, 
self-employed, you own your own businesses, and especially in the digital world where things really can't be taken from you that way, um, and then you have physical basis, you're very untouchable in a certain sensibility. So Sovereign University is sort of built around that concept, but then and it's also teaching people the fundamental skills they need and the mindsets to learn how to do this stuff and create high-value skills and create leverage. So it's an ambitious project. That's cool. Are you liberating people from the, the monotony of a, a, a world where they might not be that happy at work? I was recently reading a, a study that said over 80% of Americans are either indifferent or actively unhappy with their mm-hmm. jobs. And there's only, I think, between 18 and 20% who are actively engaged with their, with their work. Yeah, I mean, society isn't happy as a whole. I mean, I would say Western society isn't like as a whole isn't a big cultural malaise that way. Uh, where and everyone senses it that something has gone wrong or things are not going well, you know, whatever well means. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we we all feel it. Like we all feel, it. we all see it. You know, within like the media itself, where every, everything's an outrage every day. But you know, at the same time, the world is a good place, and there's abundant opportunity if you know how to use it, capitalize on it, identify it. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I mean, the job unhappiness, like the nature of work has changed over the course of 50, 60 years. You know, a, a job used to be something uh, that you were. Now a job is just something that you do and oftentimes temporarily. There's a whole gig economy now where yeah, how many careers are there anymore where it's a reliable path and you just do the same thing for four years? That's almost non-existent at this point. Um, I, I don't know if that exists at all, honestly. Every Everything has changed. So you have to be you know, hyper adaptive that way. And for most people where they want a set vision of the future and this is how things are going to go, you don't have that anymore. Yeah, again, that does not exist. Uh, so you have to be perceptive. You have to be self-aware. What do you think are the important skills then if we're moving into this very changeable time, which I completely agree that we are, and the, the old bastions of a job for life uh, just don't seem to be there. What, what would be the skills if someone was thinking, uh, if you were able to design a human now, that was mm-hmm. going to start at 18 years old or 21 years old, what would you, what skills would you give them and, and what values would you give them? Skill wise, I would almost approach it from a, like a classical, classical liberal arts education um, where the, the big skill that's been lost in the modern era is people's ability to think. You know, that, that's been the biggest one. People's ability to think, people's ability to express themselves. Um, you know, but how is that a skill? It, it's a soft skill, but soft skills have hard consequences and hard capitalization within the modern economy. So if, you know, if I had an 18 year old and I want to make them as capable as possible in the job market or a teenager, let's say 12, I three things, rhetoric, logic, ability to argue, ability to speak, ability to write. If you can communicate very effectively in any environment that you're in, you're always going to be near the top. I, I've seen that so many times in so many different fields that I've worked with consulted in where the people that can talk best are the ones that get ahead. Yeah, it is. Because what, what, what does talking do for you? What does communication do for you? It means you pay attention to people and you can assess what their needs are. And if you're creating a product or even if you're writing code or whether you're even if you're writing an article or, or if you're just doing customer service and you're receptive to people, that is, it's, I mean, I'm being very cliche, but that has been lost by a lot of people because digitization has removed human communication. You know, we're so used to talking through text now or or showing an image, but then you get people face-to-face and you see how awkward they are. They crumble, yeah. Yeah, so th- those people that can speak on camera, those people that can talk at length, those people where they can – those people where they can have a conversation with someone and they know how to listen. Mm. Just doing those three things, you can identify so many opportunities 
you know, within the digital economy and even even the real world economy. You know, social media now has become such a big market for businesses, and even online as well. The same thing is basic stuff like copywriting, uh, web, web copy, article writing. Yeah, that, that's essentially what search engine optimization is on a meta level. So yeah, th- those those three you know, being able to speak, write, argue, uh, let's say say for persuade. That's what I would start with. You know, with a young person. Yeah, and then from there it'd be more sort of like tangible. You could say skill sets like knowing how to build a website, knowing how to take good photos, knowing just basic uh, you know, business arithmetic and math. Uh, the way the way modern education is set up, where you go to college and you learn all this information, and then you go to let's say some kind of job, and then you have to relearn everything again. That's that's completely backwards. Yeah, I, I said this the other day on Twitter, where you know, I think in the next probably year to ten years to twenty years. What you'll see is sort of this return of apprenticeship where people get out of high school, they go work hustle jobs or they go work paid internships and they develop these necessary skills. And then maybe they go back to school for a specific education to augment that. Yeah, you know, that, that's how I would set up. And you know, if I had you know, a kid now, that's what I'd be telling them to do. I would, I would not be telling them go to college. You know, you'll, you'll, you'll find yourself at college. No, you won't. You're going to be made to take two years of worthless GE classes. You're going to be in a room with 100 people. You're probably going to be taught by TA. Uh, You'll switch majors four times. That's not even getting into the quality of the education, which has precipitously declined. So, yeah, that's kind of like a shit show at this point. (laughs) I have to say, so I did uh, five years at Newcastle University here in the UK, uh, finished with a master's in international marketing, and I became incredibly disenfranchised and disenchanted with academia as I moved through that and me and my business partners sat next to each other in our first ever seminar and pretty much from that day we started working together and now almost 13 years later I've still not got rid of him and (laughs) we um I was being shown a world of business in academics which was saying one thing and then I was experiencing one in the real world which essentially bore very little resemblance. And I think the time that I was doing it as well was very crucial because this was 2006 to Mm. 2010. And that was, so I did a business management course, then international marketing masters. And there was not a single course on social media for the entire time that I was there. And that's (laughs) like 2006 was when you still needed a university address to be able to sign up to Facebook. Yeah. Do you remember yep. that you had to have like yep. a like a um, the correct yeah. suffix to your at edu? I think yeah, it was yeah yeah oh, for the uk dot ac dot au yeah exactly so um, yeah we had that and then you think like imagine like you're doing a marketing course now and no one anywhere mentioned social <laughs> media you want your money back um, because it's just that massive selling chat so I, I I think that you're right I think that these soft skills they're the ones that are difficult to to acquire, but they're definitely the ones that are scalable, right? And it doesn't matter what happens to the market. If you can sell and you can communicate. Um, so I did a, I did a, a podcast the other day with a guy called Leon Scott from the UK. And afterwards he commented on the fact that it was the first time that he's had a one hour conversation with someone where he was completely focused on just what was being said, the, the mm-hmm. content that we were going through. No one, obviously no one has their phone out. No one's, you know, even yeah. looking looking at anything else other than to gesture or to remember. And I think that, like, having someone to practice conversing with, it sounds so bizarre that you need that, but... Like, you know, people, do need it. people do need it. Um, I mean, I, I agree. Like, that's, it, it, that's a quality of, like, the quality of focus. 
I, I get asked that question constantly all the time. Like, you know, how do I focus better? How do I study better? And I was a natural, well, one, one I never really studied much at all. I was always this, I, I have a very good memory. I was not with the, I was not the person that was like a good studier where I was studious that way. I was not, I was a terrible student all through high school, adolescence, college. I did the bare minimum to get by because I it didn't, I never saw the point in doing something um, just for the sake of doing it that way, which seemed to me to be the reason for education. But that quality of focus now, I get to ask that question a lot by young guys, young gentlemen and late teens, late twenties, yeah, even, even lady followers. And it's always the same thing. Like, how do I focus better? And I always tell them, Focus is just doing one thing at a time. Like th that that's it. It doesn't happen. There's not a complicated definition. You're doing one thing and one thing only. You're having a conversation. You're making eye contact with somebody, even if it's through a screen, and you're just you're talking. You're not you know, looking at this, looking at that, clicking this, clicking that while trying to carry on. Like it's one thing. You know, what about that is so difficult? Yeah, you know, but we live in we live in this culture now where people pride themselves so much on multitasking, the ability to switch through apps and switch through devices and their attention is constantly going to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I, yeah, I realize it, it trains your thinking to not be able to think. It's very it's fractured. And you know, as a, not to deliver a sob story, but I am on the receiving end. I'm like, I feel that I am patient zero for someone who's been able to see this. So I was a late, late adopter of an iPhone. I was still holding on to the hope that BlackBerry was going to be good until maybe five years ago, something like that, which is a shame because, you know, I miss the buttons. I genuinely, genuinely do. Um, yeah, and BB pin, having to change your BB pin every time you get a new handset. So what I've noticed is that um, I, I was a voracious reader when I was younger. I did a number of degrees, again, without a smart device that was as attention-grabbing as an iPhone is now or a similar device. Mm -hmm. And my capacity for um, low stimulus activities, i.e. things like reading, like deep reading, has mm -hmm. had and is still so heavily damaged that it is... Um, uh, it's not even comparable. The way that I'm able to focus my attention doesn't even feel the same now. And I've had to construct this hilarious um, series of uh, instantiation initiatives, as James Clear mm. from Atomic Habits would, uh, implementation initiatives, as James Clear would call it, um, where, so no phone in the bedroom. Phone is in is outside because I can't have it in here because if I'm working, it's that. If I'm at work, there's a special drawer where the phone lives that goes in my desk. Like I've got a, my morning routine has very specific like order of things that I go through because I'm like having to create uh, the equivalent of like a toddler's environment where, you know, you've got the little foam cups that go on the sharp edges of all of the, the sets uh -huh. of drawers and the desks and stuff. <laughs> I've had to create, I've had to create myself an attention equivalent of that because I essentially am a child who can't be trusted with technology anymore. And for me to, uh, relearn this deep work, the sort of Carl Newport approach to it, this single focus onto one particular topic at one time, I'm having to essentially place myself in a hermetically sealed environment um, where there's no danger of, of distraction. Uh, so I can, uh, you know, for the guys that are listening who maybe do struggle with their focus, I can completely empathize with what they're going through and sympathize with it. Yeah, that's, that's funny because recently in the past, I guess past two years, I realized I, I did the least amount of reading I'd ever done, which you know, on one level I got the most done I'd ever gotten done. So you know, it wasn't as if that you know I was at a loss. But at the end, at the end of last year, I realized you know what I probably read about three books last year, like in completion. Um, like that was it. 
that, that was it. And I wanted to get back to reading. So I, that was my that was a New Year's resolution this year. Where I told myself I'm going to read a book a week, like I like I used to. Um, and it's been it's been interesting because now like I so I've, I've started reading. I got a whole bunch of books in my bed, like right here. Like I read this. Here, let's grab it. Yeah, I read this book last week, Empire of the Summer Moon. It's about Comanche tribe and the history of the United States. Like really fascinating, like phenomenal book. I read it like this awesome, awesome book, nonfiction. Um, yeah, yeah, I have a few others. So I'm at like five for the year so far. So I'm, I'm on track. Yeah, man. But the experience of reading again, where I was just, you know, I had days like I've had days where I just am in my room the entire day just reading the whole book. Yeah. You know, for four, five, six hours, like getting a whole book. This, well, okay, done. On to the next one. Yeah. It's, it's strange because it, it feels good and like the re, the process of reading it is actually very relaxing. There's a, there's a mental nourishment to it. Mm. When I do get back on the device now or the computer, there's a harshness to it, and there's sort of this like this uh, farcical rapidity where you're just going through everything. Scroll, you're scrolling the feed over and over and over again. Refresh, 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 and you're trying to you know you're responding to everything at once. And it's not overwhelming in the sense like oh, I'm so overwhelmed by it, but it feels fake. Uh, and there's a subset there. I realize there's just lack of thought to it. There's sort of this lack of deep thought, deep focus to it. Where like it just it's training you to think on such a superficial level. And you see that with how people communicate with each other. Where all arguments now, all headlines, all all articles, everything, it's all written in emotional sound bites. Yeah, there's there's very little of facts, reason, context. It's just written to get your attention, fire up your emotions. Um, get you pissed off or confirm your biases and then you move on to the next thing. And you can do that a thousand times a day. Mm -hmm. We're not built to have this level of stimulus go through us. I don't think not at all. And there was a, a, an article that I read not so long ago that said something to do with the amount of stimulus that a typical human encounters now in a single day is the equivalent to the level of stimulus that a, our paleolithic ancestors would have done in a month. And you're like, mm -hmm. right, okay, so that's the level to which my dopamine is being hacked by devices. And you, you're totally correct. So the listeners will know that we are uh, evangelists of a good morning routine on this show. Uh, and mine is is beautiful. It's my favorite part of the day by by an absolute country mile. If I've not had to work, I run I run nightclubs. If I've not had to work the night before and I've been able to go to bed at the time I want, which is 10, and get up at the time I want, which is 6, mm -hmm. my morning is is beautiful. It's... A, a smoothie, some meditation, some reading, some journaling, some gratitude, some deep work, then some romwads so or some yoga. Then I'm, you know, and I'm just, I've finished that and I'm like, that is, if I could choose a day, I would just, I'd have an entire day that was a morning routine. And it mm. almost feels laborious to think I, as soon as I step out of that door, that bedroom door, I now need to enter what I feel like the, the real world and start playing the game of, here we go. And I like, sometimes I work myself up to checking my phone. And I think my, my particular device, given the industry I'm in and, and the way that we work, we have a lot of staff and there's a lot of group chats on WhatsApp and there's a lot of social media going on. So maybe I have a, a supernormal level of supernormal stimulus. But, um, yeah, I, there's some days where I like this, the equivalent of working up to a one rep max. I need to prep myself before I pick the phone up. I, it's I my my girlfriend. I, I tell her this sometimes now since I'll be looking at my phone. I get I just have, I because of the Twitter following I have and then like the email list and yeah all all social media accounts. It's just a constant um, you know torrent of notifications and just a messages. barrage. Yeah, and I, I yeah you know, I'll look at it and be like oh like someone else wants a piece of my time and I, I think I read I read an article recently. I think it might have been on BuzzFeed or maybe it was not. But it was about millennial burnout 
And the article is quite insightful. And there, and there were people, of course, commenting that this is this is bullshit. This article, millennials are just weak. I'm like, but there was something very real to it to the effect that millennials. Um, the writer elucidated this very clearly. Millennials deal with this environment of such overwhelming simulation, like we just saw all the time. And there's so many things grabbing our attention, and every task takes another piece of it. Every task takes another piece of it, and at the same time, we have the socioeconomic pressure of trying to just survive. And people have the socioeconomic pressure of will they ever be able to get ahead? And then you have you know you have all these factors that you're dealing with that doing simple things like getting back to somebody on the phone or having to respond to an email or having to go send a package, you know, is is it laziness or is it just that you cannot do another thing? You know, like we are so driven now towards this god of efficiency. Everything has to be efficient and optimized and fast and speed. But then we do all that, but does it make our lives better in the sense that we actually get more done mm. or are we actually just having this sort of these like death by a thousand cuts or uh, pinpricks totally to- our- totally correct yeah like yeah. is and it then you have to drop something off and you're like i don't feel like doing this i can't at all. i can't yeah i can't go to the post thing. office it's too much yeah. today mm-hmm. it's like um i keep on thinking when you're talking about that about ram in a computer and it's that you still have the same total amount of ram but that the number of tasks that it's trying to do at one time is now, you know, 10x, 100x, 1000x. And switching between those is just so exhausting. I um, I wonder, I, I wanted to ask someone who works in an industry similar to yourself, where personal brand is a big deal this for quite a while. How do you draw mm-hmm. the line between when you're doing work and when you're being wasteful on social media because there's always that excuse right oh well if i just do if i spend another x amount of time on twitter maybe i'll find something which i quote tweet or retweet or reply to and that bangs and that adds another hundred subs onto the this mm-hmm. channel or the that email list how do you how do you try and control that so this this is gonna be like a sort of contrarian sideways perspective i i don't control it but i, I have a different model of how i see this so my background is the fitness industry. That's where I start. I've been a personal trainer for 10 years. And I, when I got online, when I got on Facebook about 2007, um, I was in the sort of the Facebook fitness community for a long time until 2016. I, I delayed Facebook over a year ago, uh, well over a year ago. But what I saw happen for people as they try to develop their brand, like this idea of a personal brand now that has like become very preeminent where because we are in such a search for truth and authenticity and we no longer trust institutions, at all, like we don't, we don't trust news, we don't trust government, we don't trust authority figures. So we're looking for individuals that we can sort of have be our digital friends, and we'll trust them because it's a one-to-one interaction. So I saw people doing this in the fitness industry, you know, years ago before personal branding even became a hot term, and I realized that those people that had the healthiest relationship with their audience and had the healthiest relationship with these uh, these tools, these platforms, they didn't obsess over the value they delivered on a daily basis. They didn't obsess over productivity. They tried to be consistent in what they presented to the best of their abilities. And then those things that were not in alignment with the brand or in alignment with the domain that they were working in, they didn't worry about it because they had the perspective that, you know what, I'm human. I am not just one thing. I am many things. So I'm just going to show essentially my personality as it is. Yeah, And whether you connect with it or not, that's upon you. So I, I've said this before many times, if you want to have a really good relationship with your audience, and with your work, you have to be fully invested in it on the sense that you want to be consistent in value, but you have to be detached from it in regards to the outcome that it gives you. It's a difficult you, position to be in, right? It's very paradoxical. 
Like so, you know, it's one of those. It's almost like a you know, sort of paradox that like if you really want, if you want to love people, then you also have to be able to hate them in equal measure. <laughs> you, you can't. You can't only be one. It has to be able to be both. So that's that's how I work it now. So on a daily basis, if I, as ideas come into my head and you know things synthesize, yeah, I'll share them. And then there'll be times where I'll just be in a humorous mood, you know, snappy mood, and I'll just I'll tweet whatever I feel like. Um, and it's it's worked for the I realize for, and reasons work is people see you and they realize you're not trying to be serious all the time. You're not trying to present yourself just one thing. You have flaws. You are a person. You're not you're not a bot. You're not you're not boring. Mm-hmm. If you're selling on personality that way, that's highly 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 effective. Yeah, and and on a certain meta level at the highest levels of any industry, the people that are most successful are the ones who have that kind of power personality. You're totally right. I mean, as a good example, Elon Musk, 40 million, I think it's about 20 million followers or 40 million followers, SpaceX, like 4 million. And he deleted, mm-hmm. he deleted Tesla's Facebook. Yeah. Like uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, 30 to 40 million, Real Madrid, 12 million. Like people connect with people, they don't connect with brands. Mm-hmm. Yes. And you can do the mistakes that you make. Like imagine if um imagine if Real Madrid started tweeting stuff with typos in and or like, you know, a- accidentally putting up just random bits of content and stuff like that. Everyone would be like, what are you doing? You're supposed to be this professional, but you can get away with that when you're a person. That's definitely a, an asymmetry in the delivery of in the ability to deliver a message between personal brand and corporate brand oh, i i use this i use this example when i was training personal trainers where like the term personal trainer what's the first word in it personal. it's personal so you should be personable with the people you train and it's a two humans having a conversation and you're trying to help them and they're teaching you something the trainer part comes second yeah and i would say that because you know for a lot of trainers where people get into these very prescriptive dogmatic mindsets as to how they're supposed to interact and what they're supposed to say and they want to fit people in the boxes and like that that's not what it is there's no prescription there's no ultimate philosophy there's no magic solution it's speaking to people's individuals you know you are a human being they're a human being it's personal first and then you train them second yeah so even personal branding are you a person who has a brand that has coalesced around you or are you this sort of contrived brand and you're trying to be personable through that brand you know the, the former people will take to the latter they'll think you're boring or just purely just full of shit or a sociopath. Yeah. Or a sociopath. Yeah. <laughs> you see that online all the time where people, they, they, people will turn on their, their guru or their, you know, whoever they idolized after a while, because they realize it's just the same repetitive message and there's no real depth I, to it. They're I, just basically repeating this ad hoc. Yeah. Thing. I get that with Ty Lopez. Like, I, you know, Ty Lopez for me now, I, I don't know what I've clicked on, but that man has pixeled me hard and I'm getting retargeted like an, bastard on every form of social media that i log on to it's like it's like the ty lopez machine now like when i go on and a lot of a lot of his stuff like ty if i see another video of you telling me in front of a jet or in front of a lamborghini or in in your garage about how people need to start working online i'm like man like it just it has lost an awful lot of that authenticity um Mm -hmm. in my opinion I, i totally get what you mean there Oh, well, that's a good example, too. I, I talked about this in an email last night where I called it sort of like predatory capitalism, um, which so I mean, I, I say that like, let me give some context. So, so capitalism, you know, as a, as an idea, as a concept, obviously, you, we could say it's done great good for the world. 
you know, free markets, you know, the ability to, you know, the ability to earn, you know, like everyone having, you know, the equal opportunity at least to create earning power to, you know, to have their work valued, meritocracy and so forth. But, you know, like like any system, like any idea, there's always negatives to anything. And I was using the term last night, predatory capitalism. I was referring to the fire Festival, which, you know, remember two years ago was this spectacular, massive failure, this sort of like peak apogee of uh, millennial narcissism and the desire for beauty and envy and wanting to be known and wanting to be where the action is and uh, living for living for the gram, living for Instagram. I was talking about the fire Festival and the guy that came up with it, Billy McFarland, and I said, he, this is a guy's example sort of predatory capitalism and sociopathy where he created this very cool idea for the festival. He wanted to deliver this experience, but his actual regards for the people that signed up, he didn't regard anybody as being valuable at all because he, he just doesn't. He doesn't because he is legitimately sociopathic. And you know, even after the fire festival ended and very like hardly anyone got refunded and everyone lost money, he was still using that email list he had from everyone that had bought tickets. And he was sending them fake offers for other tickets, uh, other you know, fake offers for concert tickets, fake off offers for you know, going to be uh, Beyonce and Jay-Z. And he's trying to get cash out of them. I'm like, and is that capitalism? Like, yes, it is. Like, he's trying to earn money and he has an email list. I'm like, it absolutely is. But is it exploitation of people? Like, 100% is exploitative. <laughs> uh, you see that now with within the personal branding realm and even on, like, the larger realm, like, you know, sort of big food, big pharma, the opioid crisis in the United States where this motivation for profit at any cost, you know, and, you know, with complete disregard for the human cost, and then the argument, well, you know, it's making money, it's creating, it's creating jobs, or like, you know, someone's profiting from that, like, that's great. You know, but for someone like Ty Lopez, like, I even think it's Ty Lopez, obviously, I, it seems like he has helped people, but like what you just said, you realize, like, you know what, like, as soon as I get marked within your, whatever your social media network web is, I'm just another target for you to hopefully eventually get some cash out of. Yep. So I'm going to keep getting ads over and over again. I'm going to keep seeing your stuff over and over and over again. Like, does Ty Lopez really care? Maybe he does. Maybe he thinks that's a good thing. I don't know. But if but he does, if he does, it's not coming across, which is the issue. Yeah. But, you know, like, if I can sense, if someone's trying to sell me something and I get the sensation that they don't care, they either are being willfully neglectful of my feelings as a potential customer of theirs or they're shit and naive about what their message is that's coming across. And I don't want to be coached by either of those people. So, you know, mm. that, but I mean, to go back to the fire festival thing, man, I I've watched that twice. The Netflix documentary. I know that oh, we, yeah. I know we said on Twitter, I was going to try and hack yeah. the Hulu version, but I haven't been able to do that. Um, and I watched one too. Uh, yeah. Yes. Day before yesterday. Is it, is there any new information or is it just similar yeah. sort of stuff? It was really insightful. I, I did not expect to watch the documentary at all. I, I remember when I was on Twitter, you know, two years ago, and the fire festival went down on Twitter, <laughs> and it, I was it was a pile on, and everyone was like making fun of it, and like these stupid rich kids. That cheese, that, that cheese sandwich photo, cheese sandwich, and so like it was funny, and I remembered it, and I couldn't tell you why I actually watched the first documentary. I think I was just I, I, I know why I was talking about it with my girlfriend. And she had no idea what the fire festival was, so she she's very sort of out of the loop on like social media stuff, which is great. She sounds perfect. And, yeah, yeah. She never. <laughs> she heard of it. I'm like, oh, well, we should watch the documentary. Like, I'll you know, you can see what it is. Um, so she she works in the tech. She actually works in tech, and she has a company. Um, but yeah, she's sort of like she manages to sort of stay out of the loop of this, the the daily whatever Twitter. She's cycle. got the balance <laughs> right. We need to we need to yeah. get her. We need to get her to prescribe yeah. us oh, the I, digital I, the digital uh, reduction method. I'll ask her. But uh, so, yeah, so that's why we watched the Fire Festival documentary. And I watched it, and it was actually quite fascinating. 
because, you know, I just assumed it was this music festival that went down and oh, went down playing. Ha ha. But it, it started actually as this idea for an app, which was a very legitimate idea where uh, Billy McFarlane, the guy who was the, the entrepreneur, uh, he had this idea that what if you could book talent directly through like one network and you didn't have to go through middlemen. So it was very similar actually to what Jerry Weintraub did in the 1970s. Jerry Weintraub, for background context, he was an American um, band talent manager in the 1970s. And he was known for changing the music industry where he signed up a gazillion acts under his management company. Um, he had like Led Zeppelin, Frank Sinatra, very big names. And then rather than when he would go and do tours with his talent, rather than have to negotiate with like the middlemen promoters in different areas across the United States, he would go directly to the theater where the show would be held. And this was a big idea back in the 1970s. Mm. And he'd negotiate whoever owned the venue. So he was taking, you know, he was still a middleman. He's like, you know, rather than have to add another step, I got the talent. Let's yeah. just go talk. We're going to perform. And that was it. So the idea for the fire festival, it was actually supposed to be promotion for an app where if you want to book, uh, I don't ja know, you want, you want to book Ja you want to book Rihanna for your birthday party. You could just open up the app. Her booking fee was right there. You it take you directly to her agent. Um, you'd have to like put down the money, like you know, a deposit, and yeah, you know, it was supposed to Done. take steps to transaction. So the fire festival started this idea, like we'll use this to promote the app, and then the guys, Billy McFarlane and Ja Rule, is the other one who was sort of the hype man for this project. They got to the Bahamas, and then they just had this idea to just fly in like the top twenty models in the world, and you know, spend a lot of money doing this, and let's just film ourselves partying for a bunch of days. And then we'll try and make like some sort of sizzle reel out of it. And that became the Fire Festival documentary. And they never expected it to work at all. But then when it became popular and they realized, okay, we got something. Let's just launch this festival. Mm. So, I mean, it was, you know, talk about getting in way over your head. Uh, you know, so seeing that happen and seeing like every human misstep along the way of trying to do this grand project that was like never got off the ground. And it was like doomed from the start. But then you also sort of, sort of saw the power of personality where the guy, Billy, Despite everything breaking down every single day, despite being behind on money and like defrauding and frauding people and not paying people and just like every everything that could go wrong did go wrong. Uh, you know, it was like Browns, you know, sort of um, law that way. Uh, he still managed to make it happen because he just was so like, and this is where sociopathy is a good thing. He was so determined that no, this will work. I swear to God that everybody just kind of went along with his personality. He was like. You know, Billy says it's going to work, so and I know it's not. And it's it's failing. I haven't paid in four months, but screw it. Let's yeah. just do it anyway. It's uh, it, there's something I'm so conflicted about him, right? And my my appreciation of this, and for the club promoters that are listening as well, they will they'll know it's rare that we have something that's talked that talks about our industry, and this was one. And it is a uh, club, a club promoter's worst nightmare. Like, and we've all you know, we run weekly club nights. We've had. I've done a thousand events probably over my career. And, you know, there's times we've opened a club in Newcastle um, where the painters were still painting the toilets while customers were going in. And we were hoping because it had just opened and we were, we were hoping no one would need the toilet for like the first 15 minutes because then that means <laughs> that the painters could have finished. And like uh -huh. <laughs> we've, we've, we've done ones where we've had to get like a generator in because the power had been cut off because the bill hadn't been paid and stuff. And you're like, right. Okay. Like this is, yeah, I know this is, yeah, you can relate. You yeah. Can relate. I can relate on a slightly deeper level. I've got that, that degree of anxiety, but you're totally right. The Billy McFarlane character I'm so conflicted about because there is, there's something so um, seductive and, and 
romantic and, and uh, admirable about someone who has this single-minded purpose and is able to to follow something through like that. The difference is he wasn't doing it from a place of passion. He was doing it from a place where he wanted the status and he wanted the money and he wanted all the stuff that's associated with it. But because naturally, especially in this world, we're so drawn to success. Like success is this, it is the zenith on the hill of of what everybody wants in this world. And here's the thing that a, a friend said to me a few weeks ago, and I can't get it out of my head, that Billy McFarland, his virtue and his integrity was basically non-existent throughout the whole festival. The whole project, all he wanted to do was look cool on as grand of a scale as possible. And mm-hmm. the only reason that anybody on the planet is slating him or that the vast majority of people are slating him is because it didn't work. Now, if all of the stars had aligned and that guy, his operations director or whatever, had sucked the cock of the customs guy and got the water out, and then, <laughs> and then, you know, somehow they'd managed to get some villas and maybe it hadn't been that weekend where, um, the, uh, population doubled for like basically yacht week and maybe the food had arrived and maybe the catering had worked and blah, blah, blah. Let's say that in a different set of random circumstances, another iteration of this particular festival, everything had come together correctly, but none of it had been due to preparation. It was just a, a more look upon look upon look. And somehow maybe they'd petered out like a six out of 10, seven out of 10 festival. We would be hailing this guy as the new festival creator on the planet. But oh, we, the, would. we would. The, the difference, the only difference between iteration one in the real world and iteration two that we're talking about here is the fact that it didn't work. So we're so seduced by success at any costs that we forget him. You'd be like, oh, yeah, but it doesn't matter about his virtues, man. Like, look, like, he, you know, he knew it was going to be okay in the end. And you're like, right, but does the ends justify the means? And do the means, are the means justifying the value, his values? That, that's a very good question. Like, I don't have, I don't, I don't have an answer. I have, to, I have to think about that myself. And the thing with the Hulu documentary, which, I mean, I would suggest watching it since, the Hulu documentary goes more into the psychology of like himself, like he's interviewed a lot more. Ah, uh, right. The festival ending, and you see, and it goes more to his personal history, uh, and like sort of how he started as an entrepreneur, where he was like in kindergarten and he charged a girl like one dollar for like fixing her crown. That like that was his first, that was his first entrepreneurial <laughs> endeavor, where he he taught himself how to code like on this nineteen ninety nine computer. And hacked his school network and sent this message that I'll fix everybody's crowns for a dollar. I'm not. I'm not kidding. Wow. It's like he had an instinct. Like yeah, you know, at a very young age, he's obviously quite quite, quite brilliant that way. Um, yeah. And then later on in, in college, it showed his sort of like entrepreneurial yeah you, know, you know projects. You know, which some of which failed. Maybe to New York, he wanted to you know create something important. But his his first project, Magnesis, uh, which it also highlighted, where he created this credit card company, which is actually fraudulent, but. <laughs> he made it, but yeah, it, it was interesting though because, like, like you said, it shows like so like it's, it's success any cost, and he still got ahead despite this for a very long time. But yeah, it, it made, makes me question sort of this entrepreneurial mindset that so many people have, especially in Silicon Valley, where like move fast and break things, fail, fail, fail. I'm like, what are the human consequences of doing this? Yeah, you know, like in his first case, he was never really truly successful. I would say, like his first business, did he get venture capital? Yeah, he did. Did the people that bought the cards get what they were promised? No, they never did. But he still managed to walk away with money. 
okay. You know, with the fire festival, like the whole documentary goes more, much more, much more into like the inception of it, like the nitty gritty details from the very beginning. It was this very doomed idea. Um, like every step of the way where like there was, it wasn't just a series of like, Oh, this is kind of like a problem. It was, this is a red flag. This can't get done. We're going to have to either lie to people, rip them off or do both. And well, it's okay. You know, because we need to be solution oriented. You, know, you see, you see these entrepreneurial cliches all the time. It's all about solutions. Well, we, you know, we, we got to solve the problem. We got to solve the problem. You know, the, you know, let's not talk about problems. Let's talk about solutions. And like, it, like, so he goes through this, and then later on, when he's being interviewed, and like, you know, compared versus like his, you know, court transcripts, and he's still compulsively lying, and he doesn't have any sense that he even is. He's still compulsively lying. Like, well, you said this, but then you're saying this right now. Oh. Yeah, you can see sort of that cognitive. <laughs> you can see the cognitive dissonance that people have that are legitimately sociopathic, where they. They're caught in a lie, but they can't even acknowledge it. It's like which well, one's the truth? Yeah, like they don't. They don't even know. Yeah. Um, you know, but like again, what you said, like what if he had successfully done it? I'm like, to have done that, it would have taken a more, you know, sort of like psychopathic person that had some sense of consciousness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, like these, this is the, the, the messed up thing. Because I was thinking about this. I'm like, man, I wonder if I could pull this idea off, like in L.A. Like I was thinking about this because it was a great idea. It was. Yep. Like it was an amazing idea. The the marketing for it was so brilliant, especially the the, the use of the models was the biggest thing. Like I felt like that was overlooked. Mm. Where like, what did it take to make that fire festival campaign a success? They got the twenty most beautiful women in the world, the biggest followings. They had them post an orange tile, and then just because people wanted proximity to beautiful women, they wanted to be where beautiful women were. Because to be what, what, yeah, to a beautiful woman, it's a woman that everyone wants to be, and it's a woman that every man wishes he could have. Like that is so desired. On, on some level, beauty is purely authentic because we can't truly fake it. We can try, but we can't fake it. Yep. So like supermodels are sort of like this unknowing uh, agent for truth in a certain way. They're, they may have no depth at all. They have nothing to them. But because they're beautiful, well, at least I know that's real. So <laughs> that's so correct. People signed up for it. And like there are people spending hundreds of thousands of dollars to be there with the hopes that they're going to be able to be next to somebody who's a 10 and they can take a photo with her and say, look, look at me and who I'm with. And yeah, I'm, I'm important now. Like my existence has been validated. Yeah. Uh, you know, how do you pull that off? I'm like, my God. But yeah, like, could it be pulled off? I think it honestly could, except now everyone's going to be self-aware. It's like, oh, is this another fire festival? Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Well, you, it's a, it's, you can pull that switch once and anytime, which, which sucks actually, because had that have worked, the because there's influencer marketing is a big industry at the moment as it is, but had that have worked, you would have had this hyper influencer marketing. There would have been a new market that would have opened up, and you know, like Kendall Jenner's doing her own things, but you know, like those kind that echelon of of, of influencer would be, you know, would there be the new opening of a a particular casino that was in association with them, and you know, yes, yes. I, 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 man, the whole documentary just completely blew my mind. And like I say, having been, having watched a number of failed festivals, much smaller, but watched mm. a, a number of failed festivals over the years, I, uh, it's, it takes a very special level of boneheadedness and single mindedness to even believe that you can create a festival on an island. Like, try they make the perfect example, and they say in Miami, like you have Ultra mm. Music Festival, which is one of the biggest, best festivals on the planet, best lineups, mm. and even that is a logistical nightmare. 
and these guys were wanting to do it somewhere with like no bio waste disposal, no running water, no air conditioning. You're like, I, uh, I, I can't work out if it's a love of the idea that drew them through the obstacles or an ignorance to the obstacles in terms of Billy and Ja Rule as well. Like Ja Rule doesn't get enough stick in the Netflix documentary. It's like, once it's all gone down, you'll remember this scene and they're in the conference room and it's got like, it must be from like Google, uh, like Google Hangout and they've got all the little faces across the bottom of the screen. And Ja Rule's in there going like, no, listen guys, like, you know, everybody has setbacks, man. And then he uses some inane, pithy example and you're like, listen, Ja Rule, mate, honestly, like you just need to go back to making music because you are shite at business and you're just getting in the way of people who had... (laughs) had a potentially profitable app. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I remember that. He's like, what, what was the example? He's like, no, nobody died, no one's in jail, so like we're all fine. I'm like, there are times <laughs> that is appropriate and there are times that's not appropriate. I, I felt bad you know, for the guys that designed like the software for this app, which is yep. probably a great app by the looks of it, and they're all out of a job, never got paid, and now they're the thing that it, the project they worked on that might have been totally viable had it been done on a smaller scale, that's just all gone and lost. Yeah, especially considering that that was the project. And it was a good idea. It's like it's like someone saying, let's launch this particular car. And then one guy on the board decides to open up like an ice cream store that happens to have like class A drugs in the ice cream to promote <laughs> the car. And then the car gets scrapped. And you're like, oh, for fuck's sake, mate. But yeah, the, the guys who make that happen, you know, again, coming from a club promoter's perspective, it's difficult to book talent. You know, we're fortunate in the UK that Voodoo Events, the company that I own, we have good connections and existing um, uh, relationships with these yep. big bookers, people like Big Bang and uh, and and other large booking agencies know who we are and we have a contact in there. We'll get preferable rates. And But if you are a new uh, fledgling festival or club night or uh, even like a you know 16-year-old's dad who wants to run a birthday party or something like that. Like, f- like trying to book big talent is a nightmare. So there was 100, 100% a gap in the market for that digitalized version of the, the guy from the seventies that you said, one stop mm-hmm. shop, like an eBay for, um, for the best talent on the planet. Like if you could yeah. book and imagine the downstream effects of that, like you would have an awful lot more, festivals and startups in terms of events going on the artists you know how many more times would blink 182 get booked if people knew how easy it was to book blink 182 like you know they'd be getting deposits all the time oh constantly constantly um like that's yeah i i I know i've been thinking about that like that was just a very legitimately good idea and so i i've i've had some proximity there in team history being in los angeles and working in hollywood and that's just, it's this very constant old nightmare of, okay, let's try to get a hold of this person. How do we get a hold of this person? All right, well, contact this person first and sweet talk them. Go maybe talk to this person second, and then you got to sweet talk, maybe pay them. And then maybe they'll pass on a message to like a third person. And then maybe that third person might have like some direct line of access to the talent who maybe will get back to them, who maybe will call you. Yeah. But only if you talk like it, like it's just this. The stars need to align so well, right? Yeah, and so, I mean, so much of it comes down to almost this luck, where it's like, okay, hopefully, like, I'm hoping this works out, hoping this works out. Uh, yeah, like I, I wonder if that will happen at some point, since it seems like, especially for 
especially for talent. Let's say people that are up and coming. Mm. They're trying to sort of like, you know, become known, be seen, um, you know, develop like their own, you know, develop their presence that way. You know, for like lower level, middle level acts, that could be very revitalizing for their career in a certain level. Because like, I, I wonder how much of, I want to say success. It, it makes you question how much of success is not just from like a, a talent's lack of hustle, but from just like a, this, a, this poor management. Accessibility. Yeah, accessibility. I mean, that's a very common thing in Hollywood too. Like if you have a bad manager, uh, you know, a bad agent, you might be missing opportunities all the time and you have no idea. Mm. Yeah, I get that. Um, I didn't know that most of the people didn't get refunded. Is that the case? There are some people got their, I think that there were like the people that lower level tickets, they got their money back. But like, so one of the things that came out was like, like the wrist, like the wristband. Yep. The RS, that was a, RSID payment. I don't know if that was refunded actually, since they, I mean, he's still like, he got sued for something like, what, like $25 million. Yeah. So I don't like that. Some of that money was not refunded at all. Um, yeah, I mean, even that wristband was a cash grab because they had to pay off other stuff from other loans he'd taken out. So, yeah, because that was the, apparently the, there's that guy on the Netflix documentary who says that there was a woman who rang him aggressively saying that he hadn't loaded up his wristband yet, and <laughs> th- it would appear that the the tickets were maybe like three to five thousand pounds, and then they were being suggested to put almost that amount again on yes. the wristband so they could do jet ski hire and alcohol this and all the rest of it so what what happened because he didn't have he didn't have festival insurance no what is the the situation moving forward with getting that money out i mean you know he's in jail which is i mean like do not pass go do not collect 200 pounds like that is jail is the like no one's getting debt out of you in jail i'm going to presume that they will have gone through they'll have done his forensic accounts and they'll have gone through every asset he has with a fine tooth comb and once you've sold off like a couple of bottles of Ciroc and probably some shit pairs of Louboutins, like what's left yeah well that that was so i mean actually after watching the second one i sort of, i did a bit of research but essentially like nobody got paid like i mean like no, almost nobody got paid like a lot of people a lot of people like the bahamian workers no one got their money back mm-hmm. yeah something for the reason being that when they even before the festival ever was like an idea and they were just on the island filming, he basically ran a Ponzi scheme of just debt where he got capital from one person, you know, or short term loans. And then the next round of funding would pay off the first round and the next round would pay off the second round. So like when it, everything was accounted for um, with forensic analysis, there was no money anywhere because like it doesn't, it didn't exist. He got $500,000, spent all of it and then got a loan for $500,000 you know, telling the other guy, "Don't worry, you'll get the money back eventually." Like it's going towards something. So like, there, there was nothing to, you know, even um, what's the term I'm looking for? There was nothing to liquidate. Yeah, like, literally, this was nothing. So it kind of just evaporates into thin air because there'll be some things that they won't have been able to been able to get on credit. So they'll have had to have paid deposits, for instance, for some of the artists. They literally won't have been able to book them without that. And there's certain things that will have needed to have been paid up front. The Instagram models and the guys who made the video and people like that, like especially the early stuff. So I guess the early people get paid and then there's just, it's like this this black hole vacuum that's just sucked Mm -hmm. up everybody's money from both sides. So you've sucked up money from one side and time or resources from the the contributor's side. I I think the the only ones that seem to have gotten paid, like for sure, were just the models. That that was it. Okay. Yeah, like that. That was really it. Everybody else, um, like they they weren't getting paid, you know, or they're getting paid sporadically. Like they never got back what they were owed at, at all. 
Um, you know, I mean, he and he burned through money at just an insane rate himself because he was, you know, he, like he, he bought a freaking Bugatti for you know a million dollars. The the alcohol bill, his, you know, his dining out bill, his 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 paying for everything while no one was actually getting paid. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, it's just, that's just an unfortunate situation. But I mean, it, it, was, it was interesting too that you can see how like debt you can just keep uh, just allocating it somewhere else over and over again to stay ahead of it. But you know, but eventually it will catch up to you. Yeah. Like you, you can't keep going back to the same investors and still trying to f- fundraise from your own customers. Yeah, eventually it runs out. There's um there's a, a thing that's been going through my head. Sam Harris uh, in his book Waking Up talks about um, an individual. I think it was in the states in the 70s or the 80s who began partway through his life to have this compulsion for aggression, really severe compulsion for aggression. And I think he went up onto a bell tower and started shooting random people wrote a note saying that something needs to be looked at about myself, then killed himself and potentially even killed his family as well. And when they did an autopsy on him, they decided to uh, conduct a thorough one on his brain. And they found that there was a um, tumor, which was affecting his amygdala, which I think is what mediates aggression in people. And it was literally like someone pressing the aggression button in your brain. So, this guy's free will essentially had been taken away from him. And I wonder if Billy McFarlane has a entrepreneurial equivalent of this. Like he's <laughs> just got, he's got uh, this like hustle button. The hustle is just, it's like Gary V is standing on his neck, like the entire time, just going like grind, hustle, grind, hustle, like the whole day. <laughs> I, I can believe it. I can believe it. I mean, I've, I've met, yeah, I, I've I've had some experience in the tech space. I mean, I've met people like that where they're just they they have to constantly be creating, selling something, and it is it is the essence of their being, and they can't not be doing that. Mm. And they couldn't really tell you why they need to. It's just a compulsion for them. Yeah. They they just do. Yeah, I, I, it's weird, right? Because if we're in an industry, yourself and me, we are self-employed. Our value is is derived from how hard we work and how much we do get on that hustle. Mm-hmm. But I've uh, there's limits to it. There's the there's there's like I have a safety uh, a safety catch in place where if it was three days before a festival and someone had made a, a website detailing the fact that I had like Hurricane Katrina storm tents outside or whatever it was as <laughs> and there was no water and I, I'm asking the ops director to suck off the man who does the customs thing and I'm just like. Like, I would have, that would have been a point at which, I mean, long before there, but I would have had to pull the plug. But there is a lack of that. The hustle button's getting depressed so hard that he's just able to plow on through. And again, that's why people, that's why people seem to be so seduced by it. Like people, people are aghast, but almost in awe as well. Like a lot of the, the statuses and tweets I've seen about it, there's a lot of awe in there of this guy. Well, this is, again, this is one of those paradoxical things in human nature. Like everyone loves success, but we also hate the people that are successful. Mm. But the idea of just being a human engine of movement, where like you never stop ever. Yeah, everyone on some level like aspires to that. If they had the if they had the motivation to do that, or if they could only be that way, you know, how much more would they get done? Uh, but I mean, we also live in a culture where we just, we worship work. Um, you know, that I realize that's that's so ingrained from like sort of the nineteen. 
40s, 30s, like sort of the greatest generation where it's this cultural sentiment that sort of has taken over sort of the Western world. And I've, I've tried to trace why it is. And I think it started in the 30s, 40s during like the Great Depression, during the stock market crash where you had, you know, the world economy had completely, you know, sort of this collapse on itself. Everyone was economically depressed. And the only way to survive, you know, this was over 80 years ago, almost 90 years ago, was that you had to work. You had to work, otherwise you are getting nothing. So like that, I, I truly believe like if I had to pinpoint like where's the inception of hustle and grind culture, it was then. It was, it was then and that, 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 follow, that had followed the automation revolution of the industrial era where now you could get so much work done through automation, you could leverage productivity. So you have this leveraging of productivity and then you have this crash and then you have the instinctual and the, 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 you know, the predication of desire where you have to work, otherwise you're not going to survive. And that carries over into World War II and then, you know, post-World War II during like the, at least the United States boom. And then like, you know, how, how do you rebuild Europe? We're going to have to work to rebuild the rubble literally. Yeah. You have this generation of people where they, they are raised with that mindset and they instill that. And then they actually do create an pro- era of prosperity. It's 19, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, overall, relatively speaking. Where if you worked and you could get the job and you just you put in the hours, you would get something in return. You know, and, and the more you work, the higher you would rise. Mm. Yeah. But then yeah, well, then we get to, the thing is though we get to the, like the era of technology, late 1990s, 2000s, and now with the advent of AI and the advent of digital media and the advent of social platforms, you could be working hard and you're running faster and faster just to stay in the same place. The, yeah, red, the, the red, red Queen effect for those queen. people who know the know the vent yeah. mental models. Yeah, it's a red queen trap. So now your hard work really doesn't mean much because someone could be working less than you, but their work leverages way more than yours does. You know, but at the same time, what if you work really hard and it's all leveraged work too? Then you're just like a god of work. And yes. No one can stop you ever. Yeah, I, I, you, you are right. It's an artifact of this um, quite noble approach to work, right? When, you know, the, but now that we don't, you know, going back to the very beginning of the conversation, when you don't have a job for life anymore, where choosing choosing what is almost more important than choosing how whereas in mm. the past i think how by any means would have probably are you a hard worker yes when you work in a factory when you're not a knowledge worker essentially when iq is of a, a, a or iq i'm going to get in trouble if i say that when uh, <laughs> when your intellectual capacity is uh, less important mm-hmm a lot of the promotion will be based on seniority. Like, well, Bob's been here 50 years and John's been here 45, so Bob gets the promotion, even if John's maybe a tiny little bit more competent because that's the kind of the way that the business is worked, like a family or like like, um, uh, heirs to a kingdom almost. Like the eldest brother gets it even if he's a a complete tit and the, the younger brother would be a much better choice, but he's the older one, so he gets it. And you have that noble approach to work but now you no longer have the same lineage moving forward where you can know that you're going to be staying in the same place like you know as a perfect example self-driving cars like there's what is it between two and four million workers i think oh no one one million workers in america are what they call professional drivers like that is a huge displacement of labor yeah well, that's, I think, like Uber's ultimate plan, I think, with everyone driving the cars, it's, it's just the data. They have this massive, 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 massive database now of driving patterns and vehicles. Uh, and, you know, with self-driving cars, like you think about the, the U.S. economy, like how, how much time gets lost, how much productivity gets lost from people having to drive. 
once you have cars that can drive themselves, okay, well now, well now you have more time to work one, but you free up human capital, like again. So like even, you know, it, this, that desire for efficiency, you know, but is that a bad thing? I don't think so, but I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's interesting that all these things sort of, they create, they create this confluence effect. Yeah. I, I think the seniority factor arises from when work was artisan, was like artisanal. It's like artisan work where for most of human history, you couldn't really mass produce anything. Um, like if you did, you just had to have a bunch of people working on it all at once. And the people that were the best had been the people that had been working the longest. Like that was probably up until 1800. That was most things before mechanization to really took over. Something that it, requires a craft. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, like everything was craftsmanship on a certain level, literally everything. Yeah. You know, how much, you know, what could you reproduce that was just, you know, in, in 20 minutes you could get done. There was literally nothing. Yeah, but then we get to the industrial era. Now we get the era of machines, and then machines get digitized into computers. And now you can produce things, you know, within minutes, within seconds. You can punch in, yeah, like you know, three D printing. You know, like it, it's still in its infancy, but you can type in a code, and up, oh, it just it made it for you, and you don't have to do anything. Yes, you just, it's just the idea. Yeah, even coding itself is starting to change with the advent of machine learning. You know, coding, yeah, you know, the idea like everyone learned to code. Yeah, you know, it's a ha 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 kind of thing. But even <laughs> like the languages of coding now, they're getting simpler where. You don't even need to be able to code. Uh, you'll, uh, five years from now, you'll be, you won't have to code. You'll just type in what you'd like to have coded, and then the the AI will code it for you. It'll be like Squarespace for websites, but for coding. Like drag, yes. drag and drop coding. Mm-hmm. Well, learn to code is not going to go down very well there, is it? But look, Alex, man, today has been... <laughs> awesome I've, I've really enjoyed it it's been an awesome catch-up I, I, i'd love i'd love to have you back on i'm sure that a lot of the listeners are going to want you back on as well definitely man have a good day it's been sweet thank you take care